In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Usually, you save the punchline for the end of the sermon. I'm going to do it at the front and at the end of the sermon, in case you missed it the first time. If you believe in Jesus, then this is what you believe, that you are forgiven, that you are reconciled, that you are adopted, that you have an inheritance set aside for you in heaven that will never fade or rust entirely because of the grace of the Lord. You contribute nothing to that. There is nothing in you to commend you to God to have a seat at the table that is for eternity. And that is why the name of this church is grace. Sign out front should have told you. This is the gospel. And we are his because of his work on our behalf. Full stop. That's the gospel. Now, next question. So, what is the place of obedience? Where does that fit? Does it fit? If in Ephesians 2, Paul tells us, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith and not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Fine. Good. What, what else? Is there anything else that follows? I want to reprise a scene that you might have noticed in one of the Advent devotionals like several months ago. I can't commend the film, but I can certainly commend this scene because it, I think it gets at the heart of where we're going in our passage today and also the heart of what it means to think about obedience because it can feel kind of confusing when we talk about all things are of grace and you kind of wonder what's true here. And so I, I want to show you the scene in which <clears throat> some people might wonder Sometimes if God is in the role of the surfing instructor here, all right, buckle up. Don't do anything. Don't try to surf. Don't do it. The less you do, the more you do. Let's see it pop up. Pop it up. That's not it at all. Do less. Get down. Try less. Do it again. Pop up. Nope. Too slow. Do less. Pop up. Pop up. Too, you're doing too much. Do less. Pop down. Pop up now. Stop. Get down. Get down there. Remember, don't do anything. Nothing. Pop up. Well, you no, you got to do more than that because you're just laying up. That looks like you're boogie boarding. Just do it. Feel it. Pop up. Yeah, that wasn't quite it, but we're going to figure it out out there. Let's go surfing. Come on. Which is it? <clears throat> Don't do anything. No, no, you're going to have to do more than that. Ugh. Forget it, I'm not surfing. So which is it? Is obedience of no consequence? Or is it of such a consequence that I, I, I just can't get it right and I'm now I'm haunted by the prospect of even fulfilling the expectation? That's real. And you might have woken up with that struggle in your mind and in your soul this morning and you just didn't know it and you're welcome. I just tapped into that for you. We need help. We need help to understand. And we're going to seek a little of that help from, of all places, the story of the prophet Elijah, which, as we introduced him a couple weeks ago, he is subtly but consistently incorporated into the story of Jesus. He is, to borrow the film terminology, kind of an Easter egg in Jesus' storyline. But it's not just subtle, and it's not just incidental. 
you don't understand Jesus very well unless you also understand the story of Elijah. And in this excerpt that we're going to read today from very early in that very brief summary of Elijah's ministry, he is going to show us what it means to think of obedience. Because in four or five different occasions in this passage, and I think it's on purpose, you will hear a word of a command come from the Lord and you will hear people respond in obedience. The obedience of faith. We want to see if we can get into that to square it with what we understand of grace. Not as a substitute for a grace, but something certainly inextricably bound with belief in grace. And we're going to consider that under three headings. Obedience. The nourishment of it, the challenge of it, and there are two, and the priority of it. The nourishment of obedience, the challenge of obedience, you might call it test, and the priority of obedience. We are in 1 Kings chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 2. I wonder if you might stand and focus your attention and hear what he has to say to us about it. <clears throat> and the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the book, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. And then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. <clears throat> well now, what have we here? What a bizarre story. Oh, get used to it. For those of you that are just joining us, there's a little context here. So far, we only know two things about Elijah. One, he's from Gilead, which is sort of a mountainous region 
to the east of Israel. And secondly, he has come and said so far one word to King Ahab, namely this, there will be a drought in the land. For until I'm done, until I say again, there will be no water in the land. And we're asking ourselves, my goodness, what are you up to, Elijah? What an entrance, right? No introduction, no preface, no, let me tell you about myself and then we'll talk about it, like the dating game. He just come and pronounces a word of judgment. Why? Ahab is what you'd call a kino, a king in name only. <clears throat> Sorry. He is a king of Israel, an Israel that has been broken up into a civil war. It's broken up into ten, two, two regions, two tribes to the south, that's the region of Judah, ten tribes to the north, that's the nation of Israel. Ahab is the king over ten of those twelve tribes. But he, as king, has intermarried with a foreign family, Jezebel, remember her, she's a Sidonian of the Phoenicians, they have married, and it's the Phoenicians who are Gentiles who worship another god. They have absolutely no affection, no allegiance, no interest in the god, no interest in the god of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. And yet, Ahab has married in. Now, to his pragmatic credit, in marrying into that family, he has, as we said the first couple of weeks, he's expanded his political protection. Now he's got a coastal king and his defense, and he's also got unlimited economic expansion because he's now he's got, a he's got a coastal commercial trade route at the line. It's few and good. But in so doing, he's diluted his entire interest in Israel, and the nation has followed suit. He has set a tone for his people that that kind of allegiance that they had to the Lord God Almighty, the one who is Yahweh, there's just no place for that. And what what Elijah has come to do is to pronounce a word of judgment. That there will be a drought upon the land. That everything you thought you could take into your own hands in order to secure your own good, I am going to cut your legs out from under you that you, O oh foolish king, and the people who follow him might repent. That's the context. Here where our passage picks up, Elijah has been given a new word, a word directly to himself. Go to the easternmost edge of Israel, to the brook Kareth. I'll feed you there. You'll be able to drink there. And it says in verse 5, what does he do? He did according to what he had heard. He heard the command. He trusted himself. He entrusted himself to the one who was making him a promise. And what happened? The promise bore out. He was fed twice a day. By ravens, he was able to drink from the brook, even though a drought was forthcoming upon the land. What followed, what was associated with his obedience was nourishment. And it's not the only time you will hear that little association in the passage. He hears, he hungers, he follows, he's fed. Now, what is that nourishment in that moment? Obviously, it's of a physical nature. He's hungry. He's thirsty. That's his need. That's our need. He follows the word, and he is nourished by the association. 
But friends, that should sound familiar in one respect. Where has Elijah gone? Out into a wilderness where he's fed and given drink. Oh, that, that sounds familiar. That sounds like Israel in the wilderness. Manna, quail, water. They've got nothing. All they can do is entrust themselves to the Lord and they are eating and they are feeding. There is nourishment associated with their obedience. But not only should that hearken a memory in Elijah's past, it also has a connection to Elijah's future. John chapter 4, which I think this moment should maybe come to mind as we hear it. What happens in John chapter 4? He's out. They're headed through Samaria, a people who have intermarried with the Assyrians and diluted any interest in who God is. Jesus shows up at a well. He's thirsty. The disciples go off to the convenience store to go find some food. He then ends up having this improbable conversation with the Samaritan woman. She looks at him going, why are you even talking to me? They have this wonderful conversation. He says something about living water, yada, yada, yada. Disciples show back up. They've got the food. And what does Jesus say? I have food you know nothing of. And they think, was there a convenience store closer? Where did he get it? I have food you know nothing of. My food is to do the will of my Father. That there is something that he derives benefit from simply by doing what he knows will please his Father. And in that is nourishment. That's the first point I think Elijah's out to hear us or show us. That in obedience, there is a kind of nourishment. Now, <clears throat> what do I mean by nourishment? There's, what, what is nourishment at a most basic level? It's, it's where you find strength. It's where you find vitality. It's how you are reinvigorated. You need it. And you find pleasure in it. And we know how that works with food. You partake of food. There is chemical reactions that happen. There are digestive processes that go on. And there is a whole sort of salivary you know, extravaganza that occurs when you eat that. And you, you are pleased by it. You delight in that. There's strength in that. Your, your mood, your spirit lifts. We understand how food works. What are we talking about with obedience? How is there nourishment in that? It's not complicated, okay? It really comes down to what the nature of love is. Believers in Jesus, you, you can still believe that forgiveness comes by grace for your disobedience. But that doesn't have to mean that you need to pretend that there isn't some kind of pleasure in actually following his will. That there actually is goodness and benefit to doing what he has asked. There's goodness in that. There's pleasure in that. If any of you in this room love anybody, it will be your experience that when you do something for them, the one that you love, you know what happens when you do that thing that they love is. You find pleasure in it. There is delight in knowing that you have delighted another in whom you delight. This is not rocket science. Look, you go to a friend, and <clears throat> you, spouse, dear one, whatever it might be, and you do something kind for them, and they love it, if you say to them, you know what, I, I'm, I'm just doing my obligation. I know I'm supposed to do this. I'm just doing this because I know I'm supposed to. Well, one, good luck with that. <laughs> Two, it's not even true. You derive pleasure from doing kindness to one whom you love and who loves you. It's just the way it works. 
There's nourishment in that obedience. If that is true for us at every single level of an interpersonal relationship, whether it's of a friend or an enemy, someone we know or don't know, all the more, why wouldn't it be true of the Lord? There's nourishment in it. Now, look, <clears throat> let's back up a little bit. I know that you know that sometimes in doing the right thing or the loving thing to one you love, that there is not always pleasure in that. Uh, some of you who were up last night at 3 a.m. with a colicky child, I'll bet my bottom dollar there were not moments of sheer delight and ecstasy in that moment. You might have wanted to punch a wall. I've done that before. If you're the child of an aging parent and you are caring for them in their weariness and their age, I know full well there are plenty of moments in which yeah, delight's not exactly the first word I would choose. And all of us have experiences at times in which we have done the obedient thing, the right thing, and it cost us. And there was sorrow in that, and there was maybe frustration in that, but there was one thing that wasn't in that, and that was regret. And that is because the obedient thing is its own form of satisfaction. And we can't lose sight of that. We can't lose hope in the possibility that in doing what he's asking us to do, that there might actually be pleasure in it. We don't necessarily do it for the pleasure, but we certainly don't discount the possibility that there might be pleasure in it. And Elijah is helping us to see that with the interplay between him and Jesus. That's, that's the first thing we learn. The second thing we learn happens through the scene shift. Uh, if, if Elijah has pronounced to Ahab, hey, there's going to be a drought, and, and then Elijah goes and drinks from the brook Kareth, at some point that brook's going to dry up, and sure enough, it does. No more water. So then another word comes from the Lord to Elijah. Hey, I would like you to go to Sidon. There's a widow there of Zarephath. I've commanded her to take care of you. And so that's what Elijah does. He pulls up his tent stakes. He goes north by northwest to the coast, to Sidon, and he sets up camp, and he's scouting for the woman. <clears throat> and we all go, why fascinating. It's another Rick Steves journal about going to the wonderful coastal city of Sidon. What's this all about? You should wonder, why go to Sidon? If you were here two weeks ago, you may remember, there's somebody else from Sidon. I've already alluded to that. That would be Jezebel. Jezebel was hunting Israelite prophets like a lion hunts gazelles. She's got no interest in Israel's worship. She would just as soon quash it. She seduced and convinced her husband to set up a temple to Baal and set up an Asherah pole, the fertility god of her people. Clearly, she's not interested in Yahweh or his temple. So why would God tell Elijah to go to Sidon? Isn't that enemy territory. Surely God has no interest in the enemy. Oh, wait a minute. Anybody ever read the book of Jonah? <clears throat> First word to Jonah from God, I would like you to go to Nineveh. Now, I know the Ninevites are not exactly kissing cousins. They're not exactly buddies. In fact, they've hunted you too. But I would like you to go to Nineveh, and I would like you to tell them to repent for their good. And Jonah says, how about no? In fact, I'm going to take a cruise to Tarshish. Thanks, see ya. Why is Jonah there? 
Why does Jonah have that mentality? Because he knows the Ninevites. He knows their enemies. And yet God is telling Jonah, go there for their good. Why? Because apparently God's scope of concern tends to be greater than when how you and I and Jonah and maybe Israel is tend to thought. And Nineveh is one in a long and distinguished list of other countries that will just say there's no love lost between them and Israel. And in the midst of that, what does Israel tend to forget when nations come against them? They either fear them, avoid them, despise them, or join them. <laughs> like they don't know how to do the difference. They don't know how to split the middle. They forget. And what they forget is how their whole storyline began. Genesis 12, God telling Abraham, here's the deal. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Israel, it's not about you. You're a forward base of operations in order to which to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Even the ones that despise you. Such that later in Psalm 87, you hear the psalmist rattle off all of these nations. Rahab, which is a stand-in for Egypt. Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, Cush. What do all those nations have in common? They've all been enemies of Israel. And yet what the psalmist is remembering is this. This one, that list, they will be born in Zion. Of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. Which is just code for saying this. All of those who were your enemies, in time they will be known as family. Jonah forgot it. Israel forgot it. Israel forgot it big. And Elijah being sent to Sidon. The Phoenicians, the one out to mislead them and seduce them, his concern is still for them. And here we have the first test and challenge of obedience. If you are Israel, as I've already said, <clears throat> when your enemies come after you, you are tempted to be afraid, to turn tail and run, or to just sort of accommodate your life unto them and just sort of, if you can't beat them, join them. How does that relate to you and me? We like people who are like us. We clump, we coalesce around those who share our like-mindedness. We gravitate towards those who agree with us. And those who don't, our first impulse is to pull the shades, lock the door, tighten our lips, not talk to them, avoid them altogether. Our, our world tends to contract into those who are just like us. And to those who despise us or who are not like us, they got their problems take care of themselves. Friends, Elijah is telling, is, the Lord is telling Elijah to go to Sidon to be a warning unto Israel. Don't forget whose concern, where the scope of God's concern really lies. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount kind of typifies kind of summarizes that sentiment when he says in chapter 5, rather, sorry, I got ahead of myself here. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there'll be one flock and one shepherd. It's not just Israel that he has an interest in. He's interested in anybody who will come to him in faith 
and repentance through the shed blood of his son. And that's why Jesus has to warn his disciples and everybody in earshot, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You and I know that the gospel is for those who are like us. But what we forget is that the gospel is also for those who are not like us. And who don't even like us. And one test of obedience is that we might love those who don't love us. Uh, Kids, look, I don't know if you call them bullies anymore. But whoever stands in for that rule at school, you see a bully do their bullying thing on that day, and then let's say you watch them going home that day on a bike, and they biff it, face plant into the concrete, and they are bleeding, and they're a bloody mess, and they clearly need help. Now in that moment, I know what your impulse will be. (laughs) Can I tell you what the first test of obedience is? Kindness even to the bully. Assistance to the one that has no regard for you. That's a challenge of obedience, but it is a mark of it. There's a second part to that challenge, though. And it also lies within this widow. I've already mentioned the fact that she is unlike Israel, has a pedigree of a people who has no interest in Israel, but what we also have to remember that she's a widow. And in that day, to say you were a widow... You're talking about the height of vulnerability. No protection, no provision, no one to advocate for. And yet, the Lord has sent Elijah to this woman who's got nothing. And I think we're meant to think of something as we consider that story. Because Jesus did himself. You heard it in the New Testament reading. What happens in that moment? Jesus' first sermon in Luke chapter 4 Shows up at the synagogue, they say, hey, come, do guest preacher, look, honorarium, everything, it'll be great. <clears throat> Here's the scroll, read, Isaiah 61. And he reads from Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's Isaiah. He finishes, he sits, here's the scroll, they all look, and then he says, you know what, that, it's me. It's being fulfilled in me. And at first they're all going, whoa, dude, what? And then they start to kind of put two and two together and they start to wonder, wait a minute, who are you to make such a claim? And before you know it, they want to throw him off a cliff. And we don't have time to kind of probe into the psychological bizarreness of that moment. But before they have a chance to do so and before Jesus can elude their grasp, what does he say? He cites this moment in Elijah's story. Israel had plenty of widows. But God sends Elijah to a widow of a Gentile people, of a people that was an enemy of Israel. He sought to bring grace and mercy unto another country rather than Israel herself. What was Jesus' point in that moment? He's interpreting what we're all studying today. That because of Israel's hardness of heart, because they had lost the plot, because they had forgotten what it was to follow in his way, he was going to show mercy to somebody that might actually listen. Even the Gentile audience and the Phoenicians. He helps the Phoenician woman. And Jesus says, as it was in that day, so it is in ours. 
There is a hardness of heart in you to listen to what the Lord would have for you, and there's a hardness of heart in you to have concern for those whom the Lord loves, especially the vulnerable, the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed. You have turned your whole walk with God into an act of piety. And while piety is certainly there, it has implications for the rest of life. Howard Thurman was a pastor and a theologian of the last century. He writes and speaks from the early half of the 20th century. And so his words come from that day, but I think his words still resonate in ours. He says this, Those people who live most obviously with their backs against the wall, for instance, the homeless, the working and the jobless poor, the substance abused, the abusers, the alienated, the misguided and essentially abandoned young people, they are rarely within hearing or seeing range of the company of Jesus' proclaimed followers. Just as it is yours and my instinct to sequester ourselves unto those who are like us and who do like us and who think like us, so it is also our instinct to only put ourselves around people who don't ask anything of us. For Jesus to go to the widow of Zarephath, he is asking Israel to see her, to hear her. Jesus is calling us to remember that his kindness is for those who are weak and who are vulnerable. The widow is forcing Israel to hear and see. Jesus is asking us to hear and see and perhaps even help because that's the other test of our obedience. And we learn that from the widow. And that leads us to the last thing that she has to teach us. It's, it's also from the widow herself. She is, she's very active in this moment. As I said, she is the most vulnerable of the vulnerable in that day. She's got no one to advocate for her in the condition that she is in. And the weirdest part of the whole passage is that Elijah kind of knows that. He even knows that she's a widow before he gets there. And yet he says, hey, did you give me a drink? And then as she's walking off to get him a vessel of water, he adds his list to the, he adds his list to the order. Hey, could you also bake me a cake? What? He asks from her all of that, and then in the moment, what does she say? She kind of lays out on the table the fullness, or rather the emptiness of her condition. She says there, as the Lord your God lives, I've nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar, a little oil in a jug, and now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Namely, it's that bad. And you would think, surely Elijah will let up here a little bit. Oh, so sorry. Didn't know it was that bad. I'll find somebody else. He says, no, don't be afraid. Do what you're going to do. But first, bring me a cake of bread. And we think, Elijah, are you the most callous, narcissistic idiot we could imagine that you are demanding of this woman who has nothing to feed you first? He doesn't just ask of her, though. He makes her a promise. Look, the jug of oil will not be empty. The cake of flour 
You'll be good. And she trusts him. And she feeds him. And it says that she and he and her ate for many days, and the promise was fulfilled. What is that meant to show us? Remember, friends, every book of the Bible has an audience in the mind of the one who wrote it. And that first audience was Israel when it was in exile. Not at the same season in which Elijah is speaking, but long after Israel had lost the plot and found itself now exiled into another country in which they were all asking themselves, what just happened? And the author of 1 Kings is out to explain to Israel, this is what happened. You made obedience a secondary thing. You did a later, or a not now, or a, you know what, I think I got a better deal here. And now I'm in exile because there's loss. And this widow of Zarephath, whom you think is an enemy, is teaching you school about what it means about the priority of obedience. That yes, there are any number of things, any number of needs that you might want to fulfill naturally. It's your instinct. But I'm calling you to obey first. That's your angle. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus knows who he's talking to. The ones who are afraid of whether they're going to eat, where they're going to drink, where they're going to get their clothing. And Jesus says, I know you need those things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. In that moment, he's saying, I know God is not unconcerned with your circumstances. However, there are things that are deeper in you than just your circumstances. And I'm calling you to obedience in the middle of it. Because as it was for Israel then, so it was for Israel now, so it is for me, so it is for you. I know fully well what our instinct is when it comes to doing the next right thing. Mm, I'll get to it. Or, you know what, it's not really that important right now. Or, you know, <clears throat> it's really just not very convenient. It might cost me. Oh, it might cost you. In this moment, there is a place for a priority. And I don't know what that is for you today. I don't know what the next right way of obedience is for you this day. It might mean venturing forgiveness to someone. It might mean venturing to reconcile with somebody with whom you've been estranged for a long time. It, it could be anything. I don't know. He does. You may. I know somebody that loves you in your world probably also knows too. I dare you to ask them. But obedience calls for us, from us, a certain priority that sometimes requires of us in a way that it might cost us. We think obedience will cost us. Jesus is saying, it's, my, it's your disobedience that might cost you more. If I could summarize the wholeness of what this sermon is all about, let me just remind you of what C.S. Lewis said. Hat tip to Andrew for finding this one. Obedience isn't legalism. It's a symptom of salvation. Which helps me get to the punchline here again. Jesus was obedient. He was obedient and he learned obedience through suffering, the author of Hebrews says. Obedient to the point of death, Philippians tells us, Paul tells us in Philippians 2. And he did so 
and was obedient in spite of our disobedience. His obedience covers our disobedience. His obedience shows us a new way of obedience, but his obedience, our obedience will never be a substitute for his. There's nothing I can do to compensate for where I failed. The gospel is this. His obedience is reckoned to my account. And my disobedience is atoned for. And in giving us his spirit through his obedience, he renews a heart into a posture of new obedience. That's the gospel. And that's why when I say, or I ask you, what's the next right thing you need to do? The motivation for it can't simply be, well, I guess that's the right thing to do. The motivation always and always has to be the right thing that he did for all the wrong things we have. The only real obedience that will last is the obedience of faith. Faith in his Faith in the sufficiency of his. Faith in the beauty of what he then inspires us to do as a consequence of his obedience on our behalf. That's the gospel. And that's why I can't think of a more fitting way to end this sermon than to come to this table. Because if you weren't sure what your next right thing you ought to do is this, if you're a believer, it's to come to this table. To do this in remembrance of him. Because everything you have here is what you need. His picture of obedience, that it might be the picture of ours inside. This is the way. This is what it means to walk in him. This is how grace and obedience fit. Yes, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. And then in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's ask him what that is and come to this table to find our strength to do it. Let's pray. Help us not to be afraid to ask you the question, what's the next right thing to do? Help us to see in your eyes what that little child in Cinderella Man saw in the eyes of his father. A clear word of command as to what was good but an even clearer eye of love in what it means to trust and to follow him as a function of belief that you belong to him irrevocably. Help us to believe that. Grant us then the courage to do the next right thing. In Jesus' name, amen.